Hey, what's up? So, avalanche. Let's talk about it. What's, what's an avalanche? The snow comes down real fast, fierce, gains momentum. But I'm not talking about the natural disaster. Or if it's not really a disaster, I guess, if no one's around. But anyways, avalanche. What is it? You've heard about it. Now you're going to hear some more. It's an open source platform for launching decentralized finance applications, right? DeFi. That's what you want. Developers who build on Avalanche can easily create powerful, reliable, secure applications and custom blockchain networks with complex rule sets or build an existing private or public subnet, right? I think what you should do right now is stop what you're doing, even if it's listening to this podcast. Stop, pull over, go to the gas station if you need to, go to a subway. There's a subway like everywhere. There's always a subway, all right? All right, there's always a Kroger. Just stop in a parking lot somewhere. Alvalabs.org to learn more. All right, stop, go to Alvalabs, that's A V A Labs, L A B S dot org. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a Bitcoin Podcast. The only one that's making your money is Yo, we're back again, coming at you, the Bitcoin Podcast. This is episode 317. Is it? Not, I'm not confident in that I number. I'm not, I don't know if it is. I'm going to look. You keep talking. I think it is. You could look, but I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm 70% confident, 30%. Maybe I did a uh-oh. Uh, I'm the host that talks first, D. I am another host, Dr. Corey Petty. It is 317. Congratulations to you. Yeah. Look at look at us. Look at us. Professionals. <laughs> Today we brought on a friendly guest, Mr. Kevin Monahan. Monahan? Monahan. Monahan. The the uh what did you say you're the first gentleman of my crypto? Uh well, I would say that I was, um, well, I guess I was married to the founder of my crypto at the time. <laughs> we were, um, so I was trying to think because, you know, like you guys met us, we were my Ether wallet, so it was a little bit, um, I didn't yeah, know we- about what point in time this was, because I think it was 2018 that we actually got to incorporating my crypto. Um so yeah, I mean, I'd say, I'd say I was the. I mean, there was a. I mean, the thing was, my, when my crypto started, we had a twenty-person team. So I mean, we were uh, all, all kind of the first guys. I think on paper, probably I was the first guy. God. <laughs> yeah. No, we're calling you like the first gentleman because like she's the CEO, <laughs> and you're married to her. 
<laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, oh, that that makes that makes more sense. I got it. <laughs> I, that was the joke, right? Uh, I'm sorry. I should have. Uh, I understand. Yeah, it, it I'm a little. I'm a little slow. Slash. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was a joke slash. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well. Anywho, uh, that's that's Kevin Moran. So we've been kicking it with Kev. Well, I've been kicking it with Kev. What was that fucking conference called, Corey? The the, the Mexico conference. DevCon? The big one. DevCon. There we go. DevCon. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about mining today. So for those for the, you can't see people can't see uh the the Google Meet that we're in right now, but by I think by happenstance, I don't know if you planned this, Kevin, but you're wearing the shirt that we made you for DevCon in Mexico, yeah. which is the burger pizza Ethereum. Yep. That might that might warrant a retelling uh in the process <laughs> real quick. But like by happenstance, I'm wearing a my crypto shirt from that like I think the next DevCon, we all had like a competition. Like good design for. Sweet. It's also comfortable. Yeah. It's not just our standard anyway. like yeah. word. Kevin, why don't you like, before we get into mining, because that's a that's a hell of a, uh, a conversation. Also, you will be hearing Lyra, Lyra, and various noises throughout the podcast because Kevin is being a dad. That's right, man. We talk <laughs> during life. That's how we do it. Um, but what were you going to say, Corey? I interrupted you. Oh, tell the story about tell the story about that shirt that you're wearing and and DevCon in Mexico. Yeah, go for it, Kev. Go for it. Well, I feel like you guys were the ones that saw the dudes on the side of the road. But basically, you know, Mexico is kind of, I, I don't know, there's a lot of places I've been that are like this. Like Hong Kong is very similar. Lots of street vendors that are trying to get you to buy anything off of them. Like, you know, if you wanted their shorts, if like that was what they were not selling, they'd probably sell it to you if you wanted to. But these guys are on the side of the road. I guess you guys were all walking down uh, some road in Mexico and there's a guy that's like, um, you know, pizza, burger, pussy. Trying to get these guys to, you know, buy <laughs> prostitutes. Pretty much anything you can buy is there to buy. Um, so we were at this place called the Tequileria, um, which is right across the street from the venue. And we, we ended up there a lot. They had very good, very large, very cheap margaritas. Um, and they could accommodate, you know, 40 people at a time that showed up from DevCon. And... Uh, we were sitting there drinking and we were like, uh, I feel like we need to make a shirt like this because the symbol they were making with their hands for the pussy was very much like the Ethereum logo as far as the hand logo. And we're like, we kind of need to do this. So we now have this. <laughs> we now- <laughs> and so like, for the, nobody can see this except for us, but like the shirt is basically like you have your hands together and you make a circle with your, 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 your index fingers and your thumb. And that's when you're like burger. And then you turn that circle into a triangle and they're like pizza. And this is like the way that these people are trying to like convey the item that they want you to buy. And then you, you turn it into like a, tri- like a diamond and he goes vagina. And then we're just, <laughs> we basically made that shirt of hand symbols. Uh, there's only like four of them 
uh, this is back when cello was with us. So he whipped it up in like five seconds. And so just turned the vagina into Ethereum and called it a day. And then the back yeah. says, uh, uh, like, what, like Bitcoin podcast. Death. It's just, I just remember it was hilarious because it was such a leap. It was such a leap. Like, it starts so innocent. You know, you're just like, burger? No, I'm okay. Pizza? No, really, I'm not hungry. Pussy? Wow. <laughs> how do we get how do we get there? He's like, how well, do we you don't want there? these other two things. Maybe <laughs> you want this thing. I have this too. Well, it's just like, well, it's just like, yeah, I remember like you had to see these people as you walked from where all the hotels were to the to the the, the conference venue. <laughs> like there was no getting around them. You didn't have a choice. And and like you just like if you like sat and kind of watched as like the all of the nerds of DevCon are walking into uh this conference, like from the hotels, you'll see them like, you know, like sh- sh- kind of almost like shooing off, like, no, 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 I don't want any, I don't want any, I don't want any food. And then like Every single time they like double check after they said vagina. Like what? What? Like <laughs> did he? I didn't know it was available. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's an option on the menu. Anyway, mining right. Uh, so I get asked this question quite a few by various people. Like, what is mining? What's it for? Why do we need it? Why is it a big deal? It's always like, I feel like it's a deep question, but you know me, Corey, I, I will oversimplify any fucking thing if I can. And at the end of the day, I say like, uh, what the most recent thing I said is like, yeah, you know, you have the visa network. People are like, well, yeah. And I was like, well, you know how visa charges people to process the transaction? And they're like, yeah, I get that. And I was like, okay, well, Bit- well, Bitcoin miners process transactions and they get paid a little bit even more. For processing the transactions and it's not just one bitcoin person like there's just one visa it's actually thousands of bitcoin miners all over the planet and that seemed to hit that seemed to hit as a pretty gross oversimplification and they're like oh okay i get it and i was like really thank god so uh that's what i think mining is i don't know is that too simple that's what miners do. What mining is, is just like an equation that, you know, everyone tries to break this equation and that equation, whatever the solution is, is the block solution and blocks are mined. Yeah. So, they, I, yeah. Uh, Aren't so they to, go ahead, go ahead. So it's just, I mean, what they, what the, what mining is, is like, it, it's an algorithm and math. Um, but what it does is what you're talking about. They're like payment channels, like payment processors. Yep. like visa like and you get charged every like visa charges a small fee on every transaction that they facilitate so that uh i mean it, they can run their business overhead etc um and you get to use their service yep. it and also then- supports the difficulty of the network making it harder to break um essentially break the network and you know cheat it yep and that that algorithm I know for Bitcoin is these miners are essentially guessing a number that is smaller than the difficulty. It's oh my god! It's Would you like me to go? Give me to go from here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's correct. Let's pass right, the so, three. Shoot the three. Yeah, so uh, what a miner is doing is um, constructing a block of transactions. So it perceives a bunch of transactions from the network. It's like, okay, cool, I like this, I like this block, I like the transaction, I like this transaction, so on and so forth. And then it, it validates them to make sure that they're they're right, meaning that like 
person A has enough funds to send to person B, and it makes it makes a block. It makes a block to transactions. From there, uh, what happens is they, once they have the block, they then have to hash this block with a nonce. With the nonce, just some random number. You can just it's just some number, right? And then, mm-hmm. uh, and some other things. So like once they once they hash this thing, they get they get a like a a, a string of characters. And the goal, in order to say like, I have won the game that Kevin was just talking about, it's consider it almost like a, a massive Sudoku puzzle, and that it's really really hard to do, but very very easy to verify that it was done correctly. Is like they hash it, and if that resulting string of characters starts with a specific amount of zeros, then they say, Hey, I found the right uh, uh, block plus random number. That I'm guessing at to then get this hash with a specific amount of zeros in front of it, and that's a really hard thing. That's like basically throwing darts at a board. Somebody's going to get it at some point if you try enough times. Assuming that like everyone sucks at darts and it's always random, uh, and then you say, "Okay, cool, I did that. Now I proved that." It's, what's nice about this kind of mathematical function that Kevin just said is that it's it's provable that you can't a priori or beforehand figure out what number you need to get the number like number of zeros required to say like I did this. So it's just random. All you, all you can all you can do is brute force it and try as many many times as you can. And so when someone does that they say I did it, they submit it. They submit the block with the transactions inside of it and the number to the network and then that's the proof of work. It says that like I spent this much computational time trying to solve this problem. Here's the answer to the problem to prove that I did that. Now you can, because I spent all of this time and energy and computational power to do this, you can trust that all of the transactions are valid. And if you don't trust that, you can just check the transactions. You can validate them yourself, which a lot of people actually do. And then and when everyone receives this, they say, oh, cool, someone found it. And then mm-hmm. and the reward of doing this, of course, is getting brand new Bitcoin minted to the account of the person who does it. And they say, okay, cool, I'm going to start building on this one. And that's it. That's all that's going on with mining. What's nice is that like you, you, it's provable. You can't figure out the nonce or the random number that people are guessing when mining before actually like, like uh, you get a header or sorry, a block plus a nonce to give you some hash. You can't figure that out. You don't know what the hash is going to be until you actually do the computation. Mm. It's a trapdoor function. Dude, the, what is, dude, I'm sorry. I'm going to go on a tangent. What is something that's really, really hard to do, but easy to know if it's done right? Easy to verify if it's done right. A Sudoku. Is this a joke? No, it's just like a thought, like a fucking Reddit thread. I'm just just throwing it out there. The Sudoku is like it's what I generally tell people because like it's right. something that everyone's done and tried, and you know, and then when they get it, they give it to a friend, like, oh shit, I did it right, cool. What about like like uh like in a different example like a, like what a, could could building something count like building a chair, right? It ain't it ain't easy to build a chair, but it's easy to see if it works because if you sit in it and you don't fall over, congratulations. Yeah, sure, but there's all different kinds of chairs. Like what's nice about this is that it's it's one thing that it, that the granted like there's so little subtleties. You're actually doing a double hash and things like that, but like it's just one one thing. And you know that the distribution of the like or like the access to the people who can do this one thing is decently equitable. So like anyone can do a hash. Like you can literally, if you wanted to, calculate Bitcoin blocks by hand 
and do the SHA-256 or like the mining algorithm by hand, you just you get it and submit it, you would win. But like, just not, no yeah, not way fast it's gonna happen. You couldn't do it fast enough. Like you, maybe one in every fucking 15 billion times you would get a person that got it right at the right time to, you know, break a hash themselves. 15 billion it's, is not even it, close to the number of, uh, yeah, you, know, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm just I was thinking yeah. of a big number, you know, it's not, it, you could do it theoretically, but yeah. the likeliness of it when you're competing against these huge farms, there's absolutely no way. Like <laughs> when you talk about, so when you talk about uh, hash power, what you're talking about is the number of times you can randomly guess the number and then compute the hash to see if you got it right. And the difficulty in all this is a, is a tunable parameter and it's actually automatically tuned every, what, two weeks or so? I forget how many blocks, 216 blocks, 2016 blocks, I forget. Uh, it, that just automatically tunes. And that's the number of zeros you need to be the quote unquote winner. Mm, deep shit, bro. And so like the more zeros you have, the harder it is to like, like the bigger the dartboard it is or the larger the Sudoku it is. It's like exponential spread. growth, essentially. Yeah. It's like adding that mm -hmm. every time you add a zero, you're basically, it's dividing by 10. Mm. I'm going to make a bold and braggadocious claim right now. Go. You guys ready for this? Yep. Proof of work mining will be government subsidized in the next 40 years. We already, it already is. Like, look at Russia. That means I'm right. Boom, prediction. <laughs> we we interviewed like, the guy that told us that. That doesn't work, it's not a prediction. <laughs> I know, I know. I was just, the audience needed to, I was trying to get him on the <laughs> I was trying to get him there. I was trying to, I was trying to get him there. Um, you could predict that all governments that can afford it would subsidize it. Sort of there we sense. go. All governments that can. He's timer because he has, for some reason, has a timer in front of his microphone that says that we're done with the roundtable. Like, <laughs> no, that's not what we're doing. But speaking of roundtables, shifting into interviews, we had on the show <laughs> a gentleman from Core Scientific. Uh, which is focusing on Bitcoin mining, or not Bitcoin mining, mining, proof-of-work mining. Oh, they're an they're infrastructure company that happens to provide uh, good facilities for miners, and so they do that too. Yeah, so you're about to learn a little bit about how they are expanding here in the U.S. of A, uh, their operations and popping up these ginormous mining facilities. So... Uh, here it is. And we're digging into another one of the Bitcoin podcast interviews. And um, I like today's interview because I'm fascinated by mining. Uh, Corey and I started mining. Like, isn't that kind of like our big in? Would you say that, Corey? No, I think I'd say that was like our, like, that was us taking a legitimate investment into the space opposed to kind of like, being cursory interested, right? Mm -hmm. We mined. We thought we were going to mine everything. And quickly we learned our equipment could not keep up. But anyways, today's guest is Russell Can. He is the CCSO of Core Scientific Mining. Uh, welcome to the show, Russ. Thanks. I appreciate you guys having me. So tell me, when did you guys get started in mining and what was your first thing you mined? Ooh-wee. It was what, 2013? 
Yeah. Um, I feel like that's about the right time. It was the winter of 2013. Had, yeah, go ahead, D. Yeah, oh, I'll tell I had, I've always been a hardware guy. Um, I've always enjoyed computers growing up. I've been building them since I was, like, I don't know, five or seven. Uh, and when I got interested in this, I wanted to kind of figure out the, the hardware side of this. And by that time, ASICs had become um, relatively standard. Like they, were, they were becoming like they're becoming more popular. It's obvious that you could do that. You can still mine things with a GPU or a GPU rig. And so yep. I built that, but it wasn't very optimal to do that based on the amount of GPUs that I had. So I think we mined mostly Litecoin and then, you know, switched over. Back then, it was like, God, the proliferation of altcoins was just... Um, different variations of script mining and clones of Bitcoin. And so like there were so many new one every day and we played kind of, I, I played a lot with that, just playing around trying to, you know, play the market, but it, mm. it was just fun. Yeah. That's, that's actually a story about a lot of folks get in, this, get in the game. They start mining mm-hmm. a little bit and then they take a deeper dive and you get lost in the world. You, <laughs> you quickly get swallowed into the world of cryptocurrency. Oh, it happens fast. Yeah. Black hole. You go into it quick. <laughs> yep. You come out with a beard, or in my case, patches on your face, a so-called right. beard, and your family's like, please don't talk about cryptocurrency more, please, please. Exactly. But Russ, tell us about yourself, man. What's your background previous to getting involved in cryptocurrency? So um, I'm 20 years in the tech space. Um, I've been a tech exec. I founded a few different tech companies, uh, sold those, exited those. I retired a few years ago. Um but in 17, I had a friend of mine, uh, I was vacationing with my family and, and asked me, had I heard of cryptocurrency? And I had, but I wasn't really interested in it. But someone asked me if I wanted to get involved in some GPU mining. And uh, I did. And, and you guys, if you remember, 17 was a crazy altcoin kind of year. So I, I started doing GPU mining in 17. At the same time, uh, Core got started. Um, I ended up rolling my company into Core in in early 18 and uh and we, we've grown it since we of course started out as a mining company just mining itself and then in early 18 we decided for efficiency reasons that we needed to grow the business in order to really get to scale so we started hosting for other folks as well and we're still we still do a lot of the mining ourselves but we also we also like to be a host um, and that that keeps our efficiency good it keeps our power cost in line um, and it allows us to operate our own mining at at, at scale, uh, being uh, providing hosting services for other folks. So I've, I've been in tech um, out of college. I went to work for Anderson Consulting. Uh, Center's called Accenture now, but then quickly went into the, the hardware and infrastructure side of tech. So I've been in the network business um, and and core is in the infrastructure space. We, we consider ourselves, um, you know, if you look at blockchain and cryptocurrency, it's hardware and software. And, and we, we fall heavy on that hardware side, but the, heavy on the infrastructure side. Uh, the, the brick and mortar piece of, of crypto mm-hmm. is what we like to specialize in, where the real world meets the meets the fake world. <laughs> the crypto <laughs> <Are> the, world? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what we operate in. What? So tell me, like, tell me a little bit about, like, mining infrastructure. It's weird that, like, that's a thing now. Like, it's afraid the infrastructure has to be there for it. But what is that? infrastructure entail like if somebody wants to spark up mining at the scale that you you operate with what is what kind of infrastructure is needed how costly is it how many parties are involved like give us a little bit of the breakdown 
So, so your biggest, uh, your, your biggest barrier to entry at this point is, is having a massive amount of readily available power at an affordable rate. So, you know, post-World War II, North America really became a big industrial base to kind of rebuild the world. Uh, most Europe and Asia had been devastated by war. So really North America had to build out this huge power infrastructure and that power infrastructure, uh, it didn't just mean dams and nuclear plants and coal plants, but it also meant wireline and transformers and substations and all that. So here in the States, we, we have this massive power infrastructure. And if you're able to find readily available power with the infrastructure in place and the substations in place, that, that's your biggest piece. Second, you also need to make sure that you can you can do that at scale as far as your costs go. Uh, the whole industry has gotten more efficient, even in the past two years, has gotten more efficient. And that efficiency is, is driving down uh, the cost for operators. Um, but that that savings is being passed on to your, your hosting clients. So your biggest piece of infrastructure is your power. And once you've got your substation and your power, uh, the rest of it kind of falls in place. The transformers, the racks, the network switch gear, the fiber and all that. But uh, the interesting thing is to really get your cost under control, you have to do a large project. You know, we don't look at anything less than 100 megawatts now. And to give you an idea, you know, Amazon, when they announced their 2.0 headquarters, they were looking for about 150 megawatts for the entire thing, you know, 50,000 employees. <laughs> so uh, 100 megawatts is enormous. Um, mm -hmm. It certainly wouldn't run where you're at there in Louisville, but in Paducah outside of where, where one of our data centers is 100 megawatts are run on most of that town pretty easily. So it's a lot of space. And, and that's kind of the, the minimum we look at. Um, when I first got started in 17, I was excited because the data center I'm sitting in right now that I own is two and a half megawatts. And I thought, you know what, I can do a lot of GPU mining in two and a half megawatts. And you can. Uh, but to get the price and the cost where you need it to, you really got to get a lot larger than that. So when I say infrastructure, I mean, large substations, a lot of transformers, a lot of copper line, um, a lot of racks, and then to a lesser extent, networks, switch gear, and some fiber. <laughs> of course, big buildings too. Our, our data centers uh, take up 655,000 square feet. Um, so Jeez. It's a, yeah, you can measure it in acres. Um, you know, so data centers are, they, they take up massive amount of space. GPUs take up massive amount of space. ASICs take up a lot of space. So you need you need space and you need power and, and those two things combined um, and, and and of course the capital and the expertise to build. Nice. I come from a uh, I come from a supercomputing background. Uh, so like dealing with a lot of like uh, large clusters that do with like high performance computing for scientific ap applications. Mm -hmm. um, now that's that's a tremendous amount of infrastructure associated with that. But I think um, it's a bit different in that. Uh, cooling is one of the major factors associated with it is that something you have to worry about doing doing cryptocurrency mining is, is cooling because like most of the most of the name of the game there is fitting as many transistors into a small space as possible which then turns into a cooling problem after like real quick uh but with with i guess cryptocurrency mining you're running a tremendous amount of gpus and as well as like asics which definitely produce heat if you're trying to compact them in a lot That's but right. like the like the, I guess operating conditions aren't nearly as bad uh, for you. Are, you. are you running into like a cooling issue when, when dealing with this much infrastructure? So absolutely. Cooling is, is something you have to worry about and you have to think about. And, and there's really, there's, there's two pieces to your, your question there, Corey. Um, 
one, I'm going to mention this. So we actually have a whole AI side of business, machine learning side, where we deal with HPC. We have a six megawatt tier three data center. So we have uh, redundant cooling, redundant fiber, redundant um, everything. And it's filled with DGXs, DGX2s, and the new DGX3 that's coming out. So we have stacks in NVIDIA, you know, HP, you know, <laughs> higher end GPUs that we we sell to our machine learning side of the business. Now that side of the business, um, it crosses over the blockchain side, mostly in the software spec in the software piece, but also in the infrastructure piece. So Corey, what we have is like at our data center in Dalton, there's a six megawatt tier three center in the middle of the donut, and then the outside of the donut. It's another 50 megawatts of, of ASIC machines. Now, the tier three piece that is the AI side of, is it's got full on redundant HVAC air conditioning. We have to condition that air. The Bitcoin the cryptocurrency side, the GPU side that doesn't do the high compute piece, we use passive cooling. So our three data centers, excuse me, the three states that we have data centers in North Carolina, Georgia and Kentucky. Those data centers are actually at elevation in most instances so that the the outside ambient air uh, starts out cooler. And then in a lot of cases, we use passive cooling methods. So we run that air through a water wall in some cases or other methods to passively cool the air and we move the air. So in, in the ASIC world, you don't try to recycle the air like you do in a traditional data center. So you're not cooling the air. All you're trying to do is move the hot air out as fast as possible. So if you stood in one of our hot aisles, it actually feels like a hair dryer's on you. So the, the air's coming at you that fast. The air's coming out into the hot aisle and then it's escaping the building. So in, in the world of traditional high, high performance computing, you got to cool the, you, you recycle the air and you cool at the chip level. In the world of ASICs and crypto, in the, when you're talking about uh, large volume, you don't try to recycle and cool the air you just try to move the air out so all you're doing is you're you're taking the ambient temperature air and you're trying to move it across the ASIC chips as fast as possible and then you take the hot air that the ASIC chips produce and you get it out of the building as quickly as you can and in order to to build that efficiently you have to engineer for that passive cooling so the, the best operators out there uh, they're, they're not going to try to cool the air but they're going to have had they're going to have spent as much time engineering the passive cooling system as they do anything else. And, and if you look at our systems and sometime when COVID is over, you guys are welcome to do tours uh, from where you guys are at, you know, uh, Maryland, Kentucky, it's not that far. Um, but you'll, you'll see that there's a cool aisle and it could be as cold as, you know, air pull on you. And then there's a hot aisle where everything's exhausted through. So it's that passive cooling that makes it, makes it work on such a large scale. Mm. So what about like, um, when it comes to costs, how do you see? So let's do a little bit of I like this is Corey's word, the prognostication. He says it all the time. Let's do some prognosticating. Okay. Can other countries compete with China? Because I mean, I just feel like everybody knows it's no mystery. The majority of mining takes place in China. I think that's going to change over time. I think a lot of people disagree with me. But I mean, you've got three locations now. It seems like you're slowly moving out west. Um, do you see mining growing in the U.S.? I do. And I actually I'm, I'm one of the people that agree with you. I think we're going to see I think during the last generation of mining, uh, it, it's, it's no argument. There is a, a strong base. As a matter of fact, the majority of of ASIC mining takes place in China right now. Um, and 
those miners have infrastructure invested there. What we're seeing is we're seeing that folks that are investing in this next generation of growth, we just had a big halving event in May, we're seeing that infrastructure take place outside of China. So it's not that the Chinese mining is going to is going to drop off. It's just that new growth is coming outside of China. So it's just and I think COVID kind of sped that up when we started seeing, OK, what happens if a country has a pandemic or a excuse me, a country has a has a viral outbreak and those borders have to close? What kind of issues does that solve? And it wasn't just in blockchain and crypto, but it was in everything from food supply to security and travel and everything. So I think what we're seeing is in this next generation of of capital deployment, it's happening in North America for the most part, but it's also happening in Russia. It's happening in uh, Kazakhstan. It's happening uh, in other parts of the world too. But with that said, the North American capital structure and the European capital structure tends to be more comfortable with the U.S. and Canada than say Russia or, or some of the stands. And I think your your Eastern Europe is also is comfortable. It's more comfortable with say going into Russia. Um, from an infrastructure and power perspective, what's interesting, and I'm taking your question in two parts here, in China, right now as we speak today, we're in the middle of what's called rainy season. So China built out, any, so I mentioned in post-World War II, we built out this enormous, enormous industrial power base in the United States and Canada. Well, well, China came on later, but they built a huge hydro infrastructure. And during the rainy season, which is June, July, and kind of August, uh, power in China, they have a tremendous amount of power because of the hydros, the hydro production. That power can't really travel though, so it can't. So power, you know, it disappears as the farther it goes away from its source. So during the rainy season, China has absolutely some of the cheapest power in the world. But the flip side is also true. When the rainy season is over, that power is not so cheap. So it, what we found at Core is in, in North America, if we can offer it an all-in rate over a period of a year, our, our power here in the States is actually cheaper. If you look at it for 365 days times 24 hours a day than mm -hmm. in China, there's times in China where it's much, much, much cheaper by a lot, but the rest of the time in China, it's not so much cheaper. And then, uh, in China, if you want reliable power, they have a very reliable grid, but their reliable grid, meaning not stuff tied right to the hydro dams, it's, it's the same price for powers here in, in North America. So, and I don't mean everywhere. Uh, California, very expensive power. The, New York City, very expensive power. But if you go to areas where the population is smaller, the industrial base is bigger, or there's natural resources in the Southeast, solar, uh, river, the river valleys like TVA has, your hydro, places that have your input cost are solar or hydro, their, their fuel cost, they, they can really drive down pricing in North America. Uh, Washington State has a lot of hydro. Along the Hudson in, in upstate New York has a lot of hydro. The Tennessee River Valley, TVA, where we get a lot of our power along along uh, oh, the Tennessee River Valley, basically, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina. All that's a lot of hydro along with some nuclear. Nuclear is also a, a very cheap power source. So I, I think uh, in North America, we have infrastructure and we have costs that work. Um, and I think right now we have folks interested in moving, excuse me, not moving, taking their additional new investment and placing that investment in North America as opposed to somewhere else. That's a long mm. answer to a short question. I'm sorry about that. D. No, no, <laughs> I like it because all I heard, Corey, is I'm going to be right again. So that's just what I, <laughs> I, I happen to agree with you. D. I do. I happen to agree with you. Um, I think we're going to see this next generation 
of deployed capital happen here. I don't think it's going to, I don't think anything in China is going to go away. I don't think it's going to move because this infrastructure is expensive, even in China. So you don't move it. But I think once it's, I think new infrastructure is going to be placed here. I like to oversimplify very complex things. And I think it pisses my, my co-host off sometimes, but to me, it's like, okay, if Bitcoin becomes more valuable, which it stands to do so long as the demand stays the same, then all that's going to happen is we're going to approach Moore's law and that's going to make it an easier path of entry for more countries to build out the infrastructure to mine. Like, well, I guess that isn't oversimplifying, but to me, it feels like oversimplifying. So anyways, Corey, go for it, man. One way to look at it is as the market matures, every market becomes more efficient and Bitcoin and crypto happens to be a global market. So you're going to you're going to see the market is naturally going to seek global efficiencies because Bitcoin is not controlled by any or excuse me, I say Bitcoin, but crypto is really not controlled by any government. It's not controlled by any country, any geographic boundary. So it's going to naturally seek global efficiencies. And that doesn't just mean the cost of power. It also means policies and political stability and capital market stability and readily available capital at a at a risk reward price that's reasonable. So. Um, you know, I, I happen to agree with you that that's what we're going to see, I think. And I think it's going to happen over this this four year run. And I hate to keep going back to Bitcoin because Bitcoin's not the only thing, of course, but it happens to be running right now. But this next four year run before the next halving, I think we're going to see a lot of deployed capital uh, that's going to happen in North America. That's going to help balance out the, the kind of global efficiency that that's going to naturally happen as this market matures more. Mm. So um, here's another oversimplification what i i know nothing about power trust me the most i know is like my lamp here i switch it on i get light that's all i need you know that's yeah. really all i need um what how far along i guess in um energy solutions are we from like taking a mining warehouse and like taking the power cable and plugging it into a solar power like a solar panel i guess long story short is can renewable energy run mining farms? So, Does- in my opinion, that's going to be the only solution. And it's because renewable energy as a fuel source is free. And free renewable free fuel source is the only way to drive down the cost of power. So I think mm-hmm. what you're going to see, and we, we already see this at core, our cheapest infrastructure comes from places that have a lot of hydro, a lot of solar. If it has a lot of coal, that's more expensive because coal is more expensive. You have to have people dig it out of the ground. Nuclear is, is pretty cheap, too, because with nuclear, once you put the big capital infrastructure in place, the actual cost of the fuel itself um, is, is pretty inexpensive. But as far as renewable going towards crypto, again, I think because of the input cost. So you, something has to turn that generator, you know, or create that power that you're going to use to plug your machine into. And I think as as long as people keep driving towards the technology of zero fuel input cost, that's going to be a big driver in overall power cost. And I don't think it's just going to happen in in cryptocurrency. I think it's going to happen. Uh, we're going to see it happen in our homes because folks are going to go, you know, why do I need to pay two or three hundred bucks a month for power? when I can one time put some panels on my roof and, and produce the power that I need. So I think, uh, you know, we're going to see more and more, and it's not going to be next year because 
you know, the capital infrastructure and time it takes to build out, say, a large 300 megawatt solar farm or something like that mm-hmm. is expensive. But to give you an idea, you know, after the New Deal, during the last Great Depression, we built a lot of hydro. And that hydro we thought was going to last 20 or 30, maybe 50 years at the most. Well, those hydro dams are still available and they're still pumping out power. And it's the it's the cheapest power we produce in North America. It's actually the cheapest power produced in the world, you know, because water, the water runs through it and, and, and it produces power. There's no fuel input cost. You have a CapEx cost one time of building the facility. And once you do that, it, the, the maintenance cost is minimal. It's the same way with with solar. You, you put out a solar complex, you eventually have to go back and replace the film. But that's like a 30 year horizon. Um, so I think, yeah, again, long answer to a short question. I think you're going to see more and more of the world's crypto moving to power infrastructure where renewable is there, but not because crypto is trying to be earth friendly or anything, but crypto is a capitalistic thing. And the cheapest power on the planet is renewable power. That's all there is to it. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, okay. I certainly hope and I agree with you based on all that conversation in terms of like uh, in terms of like power availability across the globe um america like it's not necessarily concentrated in china and there's a lot of availability to, for it to move elsewhere but the other side of that coin which is what people typically bring up is the manufacturing of the chips that are used within specialized hardware and mining right so like the availability of asic miners especially at the rate in which they're um innovated to give a more efficient output for lower, lower power usage is all done in China. And when you when you control the supply, you, you can kind of finagle like doing a lot more of the work on the network, especially in something like Bitcoin that has very, very, very specific types of hardware associated with it. And that, I think, is the harder argument for uh, why China has such a dominant um, control over hash power is they control the supply of the ships used it for Bitcoin. Do you see that continuing or do you see something like uh, I guess the argument that I've heard most of the time is the ability to innovate and exponentially increase efficiency on the hardware used for mining on Bitcoin is going to catch up to Moore's law eventually. And their inability to kind of turn over new products that are drastically better than the other ones in six months will go away, which will allow other companies to, I guess, uh, justify the cost of doing a lot of the front end legwork for developing these things. And then it's it's economically feasible for them to then start building shops elsewhere in the world. Uh, but like that hasn't happened yet. Do you see that happening? Or do you see us maybe moving away from things like Bitcoin mining uh, to be like where most of the mining operations take place? Or is it something like uh, like the the efficiency or gains made from GPU mining actually offsets some of the, I guess, uh, inefficiencies you get in ASIC mining. So you had a lot of parts in there. So um, let me let me try to just, and this is all my opinion on things, just based on my experience over the past couple of years in this space. First off, uh, right now, you know, TMSC and Samsung control the ASIC markets. Uh, the, ta- the Taiwanese with TMSC, uh, basically is Bitmain's provider and Canaan and eBay and some of those and InnoSilicon. Um, what miner gets their chips actually from Samsung and the Samsung foundry? So I think you've got the, the Taiwanese and the Koreans right now control control the ASIC chips. And in effect, the Chinese pro- producers, as you mentioned, have locked up a lot of the, the Taiwanese 
uh, semiconductors, uh, ASIC wafers. So yes, for the short term, I think that production happens that way. Now, with that said, uh, a lot of these ASIC manufacturers in China, they're capitalists. Uh, Bitmain produces or has a Malaysian facility. Uh, Core just bought nearly 18,000 of the S19s, all made in Malaysia. Um, not because we don't like Chinese production, but because there's tariffs associated with Chinese production. Uh, the other manufacturers are looking at production outside of China, mostly to try to get folks from the United States to, to purchase their products. A couple more points, though, on the on the wafers and the ASIC chips. You know, TMSC has already broke ground in Arizona on a plant. Uh, they're going to spend 20 plus billion dollars on building a, a semiconductor plant there in Arizona, which means you're going to have in Taiwan, in the United States, and in Korea, it's going to be where your, your main foundries are for these, for these ASIC chips. Now, that's two years away, and my guess is Intel and Apple will buy a lot of that production um, right off the bat, but eventually, even there, I think TMSC's Arizona facility could turn, its, could turn some of its sales towards ASIC manufacturing and towards the cryptocurrency space. So, you know, I think in the, in the world of ASICs, um, it... it and again, there's a whole lot of things going on in that question. In the world of Bitcoin, production is centered around China. I think other parts of the world, uh, if I had a crystal ball, are going to get involved in the production of not necessarily Bitcoin, but other other cryptocurrencies. Um, I think you are correct. There's going to be a, a, a squishing together at the, the end of the line because of Moore's law. Uh, there's only so much more efficiency. But then again, with that said, guys, we got to think about this. The, the ASIC manufacturers that are currently making this stuff, making producers for, say, miners for Bitcoin, they've only been at this game for a little while in the grand scheme of things. If we think about, you know, industry and technology advancement that happens in industry, we're very early on in the game. So I think there's going to be some innovation that happens outside of the chip level um, that, that we're going to see some efficiencies because right now, uh, the efficiency happen, uh, excuse me, the lack of efficiency happens in the amount of power that's needed for one of these miners and the amount of heat it produces. So in those two things don't necessarily is that's not necessarily the engineering of the wafer. That's the other computational engineering. That's the other stuff. So, you know, Corey, you could talk to some of your hardware manufacturer friends and say, what can be done if I'm going to give you a 10 nanometer chip? What can be done to dissipate that heat and what could be done uh, to make that chip use less power? And you can get a you can get a lot of efficiencies that way. Um, I'll tell you right now, there's a big difference in power infrastructure for a machine that uses 1,200 watts versus a machine that uses 4,000 watts. If you have a machine that crosses 3,500 watts, all of a sudden the math gets real important for three-phase electrical. So, it, you know, the, the amount of power that these little machines use really affects the infrastructure. And I think some of that is going to also, there's going to be some efficiency improvements there because let's take, for instance, if we want to make mining we want to make home mining work again. The industry needs to figure out how to make a machine that can run on a thousand watts so that D can plug it in into the plug where his lamp is and it just works for him. Because right now, D, if I sent you an S19 Pro or an S19 at 3,250 watts and you plugged it into that plug at your lamp, it would make the whole rest of your house go and it would just turn off because I'm going to blow on the amp. There's too much power coming out of that one little plug. So, you know, I think the whole industry eventually is going to hit the Moore's law piece, but then I think there's efficiencies outside of the chip that's going to push it to the next level. You know, uh, think about other tech. Think about the phone that's in your pocket, how much it's changed since the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. All right, we've had 
25 years of development. So take take the phone that you now have in your pocket and go back to the mid-90s with the big block and go, holy crap, we've had a lot of development over that period of time. Now take that same amount of advancement and apply it to an ASIC miner. You know, 15 years from now, we might be plugging in something the size of a phone into a regular 110 outlet, and all of a sudden it's our Bitcoin miner. <laughs> you know, we, That'd so be we, the just, right. we just don't know yet. Nice. Um, do you see? Do you see something like that potentially actually being viable? And then like you actually have a tremendous amount. Okay, let's put it this way: um, the amount of at-home mining will be uh, actually an actual contribution to the total hash power in comparison to the actual like big operations like yourself. Because like as it stands today, like mining at home is not something that's ever going to happen unless you're just doing a hobby. So again, it, it's really going to depend on uh, power and power production. I think, Corey, that if we look down the road 20 years from now and your homes, our residences, our houses are powered by solar, then I think all of a sudden at home mining be will become a thing again. And I think your pro your your manufacturers are going to say, OK, let's go back to making miners that can run on a standard 110 single phase power. Um, and that's all based on the cost of power right now mm -hmm. home power you have to be efficient you have to be large scale like us in order to get your power costs down to make it work but if 20 years from now uh the world has moved to mostly solar for residential use power then i would think manufacturers would go oh you know what there's a market there for an at-home miner that can run on a single phase 110 plug right now that market's not there because the power cost is too much you know residential power cost is two or three times more than than your big your big boy costs are. I know for you know my own power bill my, at my house is three times uh, what the rate is that core averages. Actually, it's four times what the rate our fleetwide power costs at core. Um, so you know you have economies of scale, and and I think we are a ways away from that. But if I'm crystal balling out to the future, you know when there's self driving cars everywhere, um, I'm also saying yes. If we get to where people at home have an inexpensive source of power, then all of a sudden an at-home miner starts making a little more sense again. I think we'll again. get there, Corey. I do. I think in 30 years' time, every home will have a server room. A little tiny server. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm super hopeful for this type of stuff. I'm just, I try to be realistic with um, <laughs> how I see things currently, and I hope it goes in that in that potential direction. Like like you just said, D, you, you, you see a server room in everyone's house. I think that's not likely at all. Uh, you're more more than likely going to have a lot of aggregation of of processing power as the movement to cloud, and people might have um, what I would consider like a decent computational agent at their home that facilitates some things like uh, key management or at home like do, handling their smart home things like that. The majority of power, the majority of computation associated with that with that like that's pushing that power. Uh, it's going to be in, in incredibly large data centers where you have economies of scale and you can run things incredibly efficiently because people just don't care. And they want to, they want to run stuff that they want to do stuff, but not have to worry about all of the, uh, I guess, subtleties, difficulties, so on and so forth of getting it going. But that's why I think they will have a server room because if they want the cool shit, they're going to have to need it. So they're going to, if they want the cool shit in their life, like drones delivering shit from Amazon and nice hot pizzas falling out of the sky and their car being a taxi service while they're at work at home, if they want that cool shit, they're going to need a server room. And maybe it's not going to, maybe a server 
in the sense that we think about now this giant fucking building full of computers maybe it's just like one little closet like a like a little tiny closet full of the nodes that they need if they want the cool shit in their life because if we peel away from that server client model and more things have to be decentralized in order to have that cool robust new internet they're just gonna need to have the cool stuff man just like nobody cares what their modem does but everybody has one in their house you know, nobody gives a shit about their router, but it's there. I can see it being somewhere in between. Not a full-on server room, but definitely there's going to yeah. be a few devices that I think manage a lot of people's lives. And I think what will happen is if if the world goes to more, say, solar, uh, there's going to be certain times of the day when you filled up the batteries on in your garage and mm-hmm. there's nowhere for that power to go, then why not have a small device that connects to the network and starts mining? So again, I think it's all going to be associated with electricity and the cost of electricity. And if, if the cost of electricity is free or close to it, because you've already paid for the CapEx, um, then that might happen. But you're, you're, we're pontificating out into the, you know, at least 10 plus. Years. Well, that's the fun part. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the, the funnest part of a podcast. What people don't understand, I think, uh, and, and I, I know that you understand this incredibly intimately is like the power grid is not a static thing. Um, and it's it's an incredibly dynamic thing with peaks and troughs and so on and so forth, depending on demand and seasonality and so on and so forth. And so, like when you move to a, a model where you have a tremendous amount of um, distributed renewable energy coming in from uh, households, there's going to be a lot of time where you have excess energy that needs to go somewhere that doesn't have a home. And putting that into something like mining is a, is a very reasonable thing to do if it's powering a decentralized money. That's right. And if you think about the fact that you know the sun is bright at different parts of the planet at different parts of the day. You know, you could literally picture a fact that, you know, the network is being powered by miners. It kind of just revolves around the world as excess power is produced, you know, when the sun's up. So I could see that happening. That's some cool shit. Um, so, you know, one thing we did a lot of, you know, talking about the industry, and a lot of theorizing, pontificating. That's a power word. It's right up there with prognosticate. I like to just call it guesstimate. But, guesstimate, um, yeah. Um, tell us more about core scientific mining and what you guys is like, I don't know, short term, medium term, long term plans are, um, you know, where you see the core scientific mining growing. So, you know, we well, we like to say and, and we believe that we're an infrastructure company and we like to provide hosting services and, and we really target uh, family offices, institutional investors, hedge funds. Folks that want to invest in digital assets, but don't necessarily want to try to set up a relationship with a manufacturer in China and figure out a logistics company to handle it and build out a 10 megawatt, you know, with transformers and, and sign a long term power purchase agreement with a power company. We, we want to kind of take all those things and wrap it all into a, a single you know, point of contact and make it simple. So we're trying to make it simple for uh I want to say it this way. We want to make it simple for big capital to, to start investing in digital assets in cryptocurrency. And we think that big capital investing in digital assets will help lead to more mass adoption of the of digital assets as a mm-hmm. as a solution for things. Now, I don't know what that solution for th- I don't know what things is that, that solution is there for. If it's money, if it's payments, if it's data management. But we think that if if we can help unlock and, and, and not to put too fine a point on it, the American capitalist infrastructure, and I include Canon in that too, but we can unlock that big capital market 
and make it easy for those folks and, and those institutions to start diversifying into digital assets, it will it will readily speed up the adoption uh, across the whole planet and it'll make mm -hmm. the whole industry more efficient. Um, so at core, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to we're trying to make it easy for folks. Um, you know, we're not the cheapest on the planet. That's I mean, we don't try to be. Uh, we're a white glove service. We you know, we have uh, Corey, I mentioned to you the, the AI side of the house. We have a whole software arm that manages, you know, 100,000 plus machines so that so we don't have to have a lot of people out there in the data center. The, the software does it. We have we have machine learning software, we have AI software that does what to mine that that migrates between various coins based on what's most profitable to mine at that exact moment. And then we have a system that can transfer those coins into either BTC for holders, or we can transfer it into USD for people who want cash or, or stable coins or whatever the case may be. Um, so, you know, we, we have all that stuff so that, so that our clients don't have to, you know, they can simply say here, Russell, we want to be involved in this. And we say, all right, well, we can help set up, you know, set up miners for you and, and, and it can mine to your, your pool or your wallet and, and off you go to the races, but we would try to make it easy. So hey, you got a good product. Go ahead, Corey. Uh, oh yeah. I was going to say like there, yeah, that, that explanation um, brought something up that we've had conversations about that. I don't think quite, quite a lot of people understand is um, you, you have, you have AI that's trying to um, attempt to choose the right asset to mine at any given moment. And it's quite dynamic, but um, something that those things heavily rely upon which is uh, kind of one of those kind of attack vectors or something like that is the data source in which they get that information that's and right. its manipulability. And that's where like the whole Oracle issue comes in. Can you talk about kind of uh, like, can, can you talk about that part in terms of why that's okay. important? Yeah. I, I know this is also like proprietary information, I'm sure, but like at least address the idea that like data sources are incredibly important for things like this. Yes. So um, I'm going to talk about it. But Corey, you must understand that my knowledge of this is a half inch deep. It's a mile wide, but it's a half inch deep. Ian, our chief, our uh, Ian, who's in charge of our AI division, um, you guys should have him on sometime. Or Corey at Venable, you guys should just call him and talk to him because he is brilliant and he he can his him and his team can dive into some immense details for you that I cannot. But not because I'm trying to protect anything, but because I just don't know. So I'll tell you though uh, the knowledge I do have. So we we attack we use. Of course, the data sources that your that your algorithms are based on are paramount and the most important. Because if you don't have the right kind of data sources, uh, or your data sources can be manipulated, then the out outcomes are are moot. They don't they don't work. So I will tell you this. So we I know we have about seventy thousand sources of information that we're pulling in from at all points in time. Damn. Everything from Reddit and Twitter and social media to to exchange data to our own machine data, by the way, we use our own machine data on what it's doing to help analyze and do this. Now we started doing this a couple years ago. Uh, we've just recently rolled it out to mark to, to some of our clients, uh, but we've been doing it. We've seen it. We've seen a great lift, but again, Ian and his team, um, you know, they work tirelessly to analyze and decide which data sources to include and which ones to exclude. And, and, we, you know, uh, for the most part, they include more data sources, uh, than, than exclude them, but you're absolutely right. That information or your outcomes can be manipulated by either your data sources or the quality of that data that comes from those data sources. Uh, so what we've done is we've erred on the side of, we want more data and we dump a lot of data into it in order to get, uh, in order to get our answers. And there's other folks out there with, with similar products on the market that have, you know, great outcomes as well. 
we happen to to really like ours because it's secure and it's tied in right into our mining system. Um, and we trust the team that, that built it that it's we, we trust the outputs that it that provides for us because we've had some really great success with it over the years um again though i'd love to hook you up with ian so and you guys could probably go down a a, a rabbit mm -hmm. hole in that area that i cannot go join hash you it out that's, that's what i enjoy <laughs> that sounds like an episode of hashing it out if you ask me i don't know yeah um, i think that'd be that'd be relatively good for hashing it out to talk about kind of uh, that as a whole in terms mm -hmm. even even outside of the the cryptocurrency ecosystem just yeah. um i mean yeah i could i could talk about it for hours but what can't i yeah we russ we have a show on the network called hashing it out where words like guesstimate will get me banned for life so <laughs> but anyways um well, I guess we'll wrap it up with our, our trademark question. That is, in 10 words or less, can you describe blockchain? Blockchain is like toilet paper on a roll. Really? Hold up. Yeah. That is probably the most unique answer I think we've ever gotten. Okay. Can you so, elaborate on that? You yeah. don't have 10 words. Just elaborate. <laughs> yeah. elaborate if you like. I mean, toilet paper on a roll changed the world. But I don't think when it come out, people realize just how much it changed the world. But it also changed the infrastructure of the world. It changed plumbing. It changed cities. It changed the way people were able to congregate. It created indoor plumbing. That's and the when best. It's missing, when it's missing, people panic. Did you guys try to go to the grocery store and buy any toilet paper in March? It was rough. What happened? It, it was, was rough. rough. I couldn't find toilet paper. My friends on Telegram would message, who's got toilet paper? I got a, I got extra roll. You can have it. All right, meet me over here and give it to me. Like, <laughs> eventually... It, it, it becomes just integrated <laughs> into your life. It becomes integrated into your life and you don't realize how important it is until there's a problem. And, you know, it's been around for a hundred years or so. So I, I think blockchain is like that. I think we're going to, when you fast forward, it's going to become some so integrated in our life that it's just kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's just there and it's always there and people deal with it every day in the most intimate of ways and don't even think about it. Um, and it's going to ingratiate, it's going to, it's going to interweave itself into all of our infrastructure and a hundred years from now, it's going to have changed some of our infrastructure for the better. Um, and if something happens to it and it happens to break one day, it's going to cause mass panic. It's going to get real shitty. It's going to be real shitty. I like it. I like it. But right now, it's in, it's in its early stages. It's like when it just come out. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is a new way of doing things. But we've done this. We've we've cleaned ourselves this other way in the past. <laughs> so, man, Corey, I can confidently say that's the best answer to that question in yeah, five that's, that's years of doing this. My favorite answer I think we've ever gotten. And by, by, what, what episode is this? 317? I don't know. Yeah, this is, we've been doing this show since 2015. That's the best answer to that question that we've had. Thank you, Russell. That was awesome. You're now, you're now the bar. The bar has been set. Yeah. And I, I dare someone to try and beat it. <laughs> well, guys, I appreciate y'all having me on the show. I really do. I enjoyed it. And I, and I do definitely think you should get Ian to talk about the AI side and the what to mind side sometime. He's a brilliant guy. He's South African. Uh, he, so he's got a, he's got a funny accent, but um, he, he, he gets along great with folks um, and he is super brilliant. I mean, you would really, you would really get along with him. Well, all right. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks guys. And we're back. Muted the timer this time. So it won't go off and no one knows the production level of this show is paramount. It's on par with HBO.
This is what so, happens when you podcast for five plus years. You get this good. <laughs> so um, we hope you enjoy that interview about uh, mining infrastructure. I get excited. I get excited to meet Mis Pantalones because it's almost as if everything. Um, I don't know. I'm just getting tired of being right, Corey. I'm getting tired of being right, bro. I will say, like, if you listen to this podcast for a while, like, we've we've been right a lot, like, surprisingly. I don't know if like this if we're only yeah. counting the rights and we're like not even like talking about how many times we were wrong because probably a lot of times we were wrong. No, no, no. We're we right only a lot. Talk when we're right. We only talk when we're right. That's what, <laughs> that's what um, Corey, I know that you're not a big fan of proof of work. Well, I oh, can't say that. that. Don't say that. That's, not presumptuous. True. that's a presumptuous thing to say. But I know at one point you were a huge fan of proof of stake. I, for one, am in a now. I used to be on a play. Now I'm firmly in a I just want what works kind of like stance. Like I think proof of work isn't going away because it's just a cash cow and it forever will be um, if the design of the proof of work algo the one that's popular right now which is bitcoin if that keeps working like it is then proof of work will never go away because it's just much the greed is too powerful oh, dude you want to talk about greed look at ethereum right now like yeah they are making hand over foot the miners right now on uh all of the transactions that are coming through it's absurd like the fees are so high in ethereum and like for some reason, other people keep using it for various applications, and and the miners are making out like bandits right now on Ethereum. All right, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm back. I don't. I I just think that Ethereum is going to go through all the exact same growing pains that Bitcoin has gone through, and it's going to be a good thing because Bitcoin, well, a good thing in terms of the purchasing power of your crypto if you do own that Ether, if you own Ether. But to me, it's just like it's obvious that they're going to go through the exact same growing pains. And now what happened to Bitcoin is now happening to Ether, but at a crazy pace. I'm talking about DeFi. Like Bitcoin was slow and kind of shitty. And all the hyper uh, early adopters were like, Bitcoin doesn't need to do everything. we. Bitcoin can't do everything we needed to do. So then along, along comes Ethereum. And it's that saving grace. It can do all the things that Bitcoin can't. And it does it so smooth and Vitalik shit on the world. And then now <laughs> Ethereum won't do everything that we needed to do. So right now, the biggest need is this DeFi fucking math, goddamn magic science that they're doing. And now there's this entire budding community of just DeFi people, like DeFi tokens, DeFi networks, De just DeFi. And I... I see the same problem happening there too. Like I just, it's like these little pockets just keep spinning off. Replace DeFi with ICOs, and it's the same trends. Yeah, actually, yeah. So, but I think there's a little. Is there a little more functionality to these DeFi tokens than there are to? Well, DeFi, you have to have something that's working before you are raising money or really like basically before you're using it. You have to have something yeah you gotta put up That's collateral in a lot of ways to earn yes. on things so you actually like this is i mean it weeds out the people that are totally scamming because like you have to be able to do the work to build something so there is that but the the way that people are throwing money at it 
from the outside perspective. It's not from the building perspective. It's the way that like the people same level of like the lack of risk aversion is there. Like people yeah. are just like, I got money, I'll throw money at this. I don't care how risky it is, whatever. Yes. And then like, yeah, when like, they lose it, they get all mad at the people who created it, who are just like, in some cases, just like a, one dude who made smart contracts that blew up, you know, like in other cases, it's companies that don't get audits. In other, case, like, it, in other cases, it's like really legitimate companies that have, you know, subtle software bugs. In some cases it works. Like it's, it's, there's just no risk aversion at all in the people who are throwing money at these things because they're like, it's all kind of funny money. I got all this ether or whatever it is. Let's just fucking do something with it. What makes me laugh is I think that like the stimulus money from the US side is probably fueling a huge chunk of it because it's much easier to invest somebody else's money than your own. Yeah. So like yeah. here's some like extra inflation. Is that the, is that the motto of like every every firm, every like venture <laughs> venture capital firm? It's like <laughs> we take risks. It's easier to invest money that's not yours. I mean, it's absolutely, it's like, is there, I feel like it's, for me investing, I like investing my own money because I can't lose somebody else's money and have them be like mad at me later. But like, you know, for lots of people, especially if you don't have money and you would like to invest, like going to a firm and having someone hand you a fund with $50 million in it is much easier. And also like spending that money and picking the companies that you pick, I bet it's much easier to do at that point. Well, you're like removed from like the... Emotional attachment. Emotional attachment to that money. <laughs> I think you're actually defining shitty investors, Kevin. I think that's what you Someone who has no morals whatsoever. It's like, yeah, well, what's uh, going on my money? Okay, let it ride. Most, some of the most successful investors have very, very not great morals, in my opinion. Not all of them. But also, it's like a lot of the investors right now just aren't educated enough because the investors are not uh, like accredited investors. They're you and me and you know everyone yeah, you think, is like, throwing you, money it, at DeFi. If it's if the same thing is true about what you said about ICOs, like ICOs made it incredibly easy for anyone to make a token and then sell it to people who and then and then like drastically increased the level of inclusion to people who could contribute to these things. Whereas like previously you had like accredited investors only for people who had business ideas and so on and so forth. And so like in order to become a credit investor, you need to understand a lot about investing and have somewhat of a track record of making money. Uh, uh, you just need a lot of money mm -hmm. to become yeah, but like, accredited. Okay, then like the, it's, the argument there is that if you have a lot of money, it, you probably know how to get money. Yeah, that's the. That's well, not that's, always true. That's not. I mean, so that's part of it's. But the reason that it's like, yeah, <laughs> I feel like the accreditation process is more because of what happened during the ICOs where you have these huge people like everyone's like, yeah. you know, we, we had people calling Scotland Yard, contacting us in our support, trying to like find people's like had like Fisher's computers. And it's like, what do you I, one, we don't fucking have that data Two, like this is not like this is you invested money into a scam like that was your decision. Like due diligence is part of the investment process because of the because of these things. People yeah. try and scam real investors too. They just should know better. Well, that's like the double-edged sword of inclusion, right? It's like the more, the, the broader and broader net that you throw that allows people to participate in whatever service or product you're offering or like invest in that thing that you're doing, the, the more likely that you're going to get people who don't know what they're talking about, doing, understand money, so on and so forth. 
But I'm not gonna. Uh, like, you want to include people, but there's also this fine line of like people need to do due diligence and the process of like putting their money in something. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that like, you know, the, the, the exclusion is the best way to deal with the problem. But it's like at one point in every market, everyone was included. Like the reason that the credit investment is a thing and you need a certain amount of means to do that, to become accredited is because basically someone decided at some point that this is what you can afford to lose the money. Like mm. it, it's basically lots of people were losing. I mean, how many people were ruined? How many times did you read articles during the ICOs that were like, I just invested my daughter's college fund in a Bitcoin at 20,000. Like, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin's still not back to 20,000 if your daughter, well, fortunately COVID stopped schools, but like if your daughter had to go to school <laughs> this year, like you'd be screwed. Mm-hmm. You, you're still down. Half of her money's still gone. You know what? And that is a strong argument now come to think about it. I think what I do think, though, is they can stand to lower those constraints just a little bit. Absolutely. Like some of the constraints are they're just astronomical. It's like you got to no. it's like there's no way around it. If you're not in the top, I don't know, three percent of wealth generation, you're not a credit investor. That's way too small. That's way too small amount of people. I think anyone that makes 200k or 250k a year can become accredited. That's the that's the lower rung. It's still a lot. Like most people don't yeah. make that much money. So I mean, I as I said, I don't necessarily agree with everything that's involved, but I do agree with you know somehow forcing people to become educated before they can you know do things that you, you hurt them. It's not like it's <laughs> accredited investment is made to protect the investor. It's not. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I figured it out. I figured it out. We'll make, we'll make financial education captures that people need to get through in order to get to the actual page where they do the investment. Done. Well, and you know, you, you, you do understand one hundred percent that this money is going. There's like a ninety-nine percent chance that that money is going away forever. Yeah. Like that's yeah. the way that you kind of have to like. When I first started investing, like I had someone tell me, like ninety-nine percent of the money you invest, just look at it as gone forever. Like the one percent will gain enough that you will, it will pay off for every, every part of the rest of that 99%. Like that that's 99%. It's been the story of my uh, shitcoin investment endeavor around the 2017s. Yep. I have a yeah. lot of shitcoins and a few of them made me a lot. A lot of them. Like, did not. Um, Most of them did not. And I have them in a wallet somewhere and they're like, you know, some of them literally are marked by Etherscan now as scams. They're, like, they're nostalgic <laughs> at this point. I, I had a um, a gentleman who I looked at as a mentor who told me, like, if you have a hundred thousand to lose, take ten thousand, place ten ten thousand dollar bets on ten 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 different, you know, very different uh, sectors of investment, like ten thousand real estate, ten thousand foreign real estate. 10,000 gold, 10,000 silver, 10,000 this, and just wait. And he was like, and, and just wait. Some of it's going to be shit. Some of it's going to be right in the middle. And some of it's going to be like, holy shit, you made two, three years salary in one year on on one of those. And he's like, just, just fucking just wait. And I was like, okay. So, I mean, it hasn't been. Just lost your audio, dude. Uh, sorry. I actually I just muted it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I hear both of you now. We're good. 
Okay, yeah. sorry. I like apparently I think it's my headphone cord is not. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but um, we kind of bounced around. We started talking about mining a little bit, what mining is, what they're doing. Um, I'm excited to hear that. I I think this is I'm 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 not stupid, but I just like to try to simplify things because why make things overly complex? Why has no one thought like, oh, we made this technology that takes energy, feeds that energy into fucking algorithms and computer chips, whatever, blah blah blah, and spits out actual value, spits out money. Cool. We literally have figured out how to abstract energy into money. We're doing that now. Why don't people just like take, okay, so you know how you plug stuff in to the power outlet? Like why doesn't somebody take their mining factory and just run a long ass cord straight to their power plant and just fucking mine and make money? Like, I don't understand. What? what? Like if you turn energy on money, just fucking turn energy into money. Like how come power companies aren't like, wait a second. We can like make money off of this. Like, if I owned a power company right now, I'd be like, yo, hook that fucking mining facility up to my shit and give me a cut. So, I think cable companies are like, there's a few companies that are, but like the actual power companies still make more money off of charging you for power. Um, yeah, more, but I mean, you gotta think it's not the investment on their part isn't very good because they would have to have such a massive, they'd have to win. You have to win blocks for mining to be profitable. Like yeah. if you don't mine blocks, you are just paying for the power. And there is, you know, one block every so often. And like mm-hmm. one person is going to win that block. And how many fucking farms are there in China that have hundreds of thousands of like things competing for these? These are like computers. You're not competing against people. Right? You're com- yeah. You're competing against like computers. You're not competing against other like individual people. Like there are these farms of computers and like mm-hmm. every individual computer has some power so like there's companies that have a hundred thousand computers and you're like okay so how do i even as a power company how do you compete with that like you and you are then using the power that you have to i mean you have to be profitable versus i i I don't know you're kind of it's like you want to be profitable but like as far as an investment on a power company's part into like a mining thing like that it would you have to be provably profitable before they would make that type of investment. I the difficulty say. in a lot of that is the access to the transition function from energy to money. And that is hardware. That hardware and the distribution of that hardware dictates whether or not it's profitable or, or economical or reasonable for a people for people with power to turn it into money. And the lifetime of that investment and the infrastructure, like if you listen to the interview, the infrastructure involved of housing that hardware and all of the like power, networking, cooling, et cetera, along with a with like running those machines, dictates like whether or not it's a profitable business. Like power is power. It's 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 useful everywhere. The 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 access to the hardware which turns that power into Bitcoin is not. That's a very, very, very specific thing made by very few companies in very few parts of the world. That may become more distributed later on down the line, but it's not yet. GPUs are arguably a much better distribution of things. That's why like many of the other networks outside of Bitcoin move to things like uh, script mining for Litecoin or 
or F hash for Ethereum, things like that, because you could use a GPU, which is a much more evenly distributed piece of hardware that isn't as specialized. So it's generally useful, even outside of just mining. And so like that is the, is the, the, the other factor that people don't talk about too much in terms of um, why it's difficult to mine and how like, quote unquote fair it is and why it's maybe more specifically concentrated at different parts of the world because they have better access to those things. Yeah, I thought a lot of that. I mean, both interviews from that company were super interesting. I mean, and I, I mean, it may just be me and not being up to date on stuff, but it, the way they were talking about the, what you have to think about too is like when you're, you can't just have like, you know, a warehouse full of computers that's mining. Like there's a lot more that goes into it because the, the, the computer power and the processing power takes to do the processes to break, break, to, to hash blocks. You, uh, it may, it generates a lot of heat, like a lot, like an immense amount of heat. And this is one of actually the bigger problems in mining is that like the more like GPUs you have, the more ASICs you have, the hotter it gets. And um, they, in, the audit, in the interview, they were talking about uh, passively cooling these facilities. And, you know, if you look at like things that have been doing, generating heat like this for a long time, it's like things like indoor grow operations for, I mean, anything, vegetables, but, you know, weed. Like there are these like million watt operations. Like this guy was talking about six thousand and fifty thousand watts. Those lights put out a lot of wattage. Yeah, we're talking like literally million watt facilities. This guy is talking uh, six thousand and fifty thousand watt things. These are very small operations as far as that's concerned. And you know, generate watts of heat. It's like it's a direct correlation. Lights and computers are very similar. Computers don't produce light, but they they produce electricity that goes in your computer into your screen and like tells you gives you all your data. Both produce heat. It's like a, that's their side effect. And passively cooling works up to a certain. It's not really scalable. Like it is because the air is always there. But when you're generating these heat and you want to put like more of these things into smaller spaces, passive cooling never will cut it. Like you will not see a million watt grow operation without AC in there. Like a huge, huge like thing of AC and passive cooling. So you need to cool down the air because it's not your computer. The cooler you have it running to some point, your computer will run more efficiently. So like letting it heat up, basically passive cooling is going to cool everything down to whatever the passive uh, air's heat is. So if you have cold air, that's great. But if you have like, you know, 70 degree room temperature, air, like you live in California, and it's nice outside. You are keeping everything kind of hot and it's not like you will never keep it at that temperature. You'll be somewhere above it, and the more stuff you pack in, the harder it's going to be to keep cool, even with passively cooling. So I feel like that part would be very hard to scale. Um, so it's like at the point you have all this stuff, like you've solved your hardware problem. You now have the electricity. You have the hardware. Now what? <laughs> like how do you make more? Like how do you – and how do you compete with these farms and make it, um, you know, um, like affordable – and profitable for like an individual person to pay you a monthly fee for it or companies to pay you a monthly fee for it. How can you provably make this? I, I don't know. I feel like a lot, it, basically it's like a lot of people would be spending a lot of money for miners that never won anything. And now how do you, and trust is the next thing that I thought about because it, why do you trust that they're miners? Like when they win, you're getting whatever miners that won that you paid for, like what goes where, you know? You can verify the chain and what blocks were one, but you can't verify necessarily the hardware that it was used to, you know, in a, in a data farm. 
Yeah, mining, like, so mining pool operators have quite a bit of power. Yes. And it's a big trust. I mean, everything in blockchain is a huge trust thing because the transactions are immutable and not reversible. <laughs> like, so, you know, yeah. you add this third party and that becomes the bigger, like, the bigger problem than like the actual, like the fact that you, whether or not it can be doable. It's like, can we yeah. trust these people to do it? Even if it is something that could be done. I'm, I'm very glad that the community as a whole is, turn, is turning the corner on the trustless tag that people used to throw around very naively because <laughs> trust just doesn't go away. You can't make something trustless. So you, you can make something secure in a way that you don't have to trust it because you trust the way that the system is set up. So like they're like basically it's like blockchain like bitcoin you yeah. you, tr you trust blockchain you, you trust blockchain you trust, you trust the system you don't trust the people it's yes like yeah. when you say trustless what you're talking about is removing trust from humans and putting it into something computing into computers that don't care yes it's 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 almost so subtle it needs a different word because you're never going to remove trust from humans it's, yeah, Ever. It's, yeah well it's you have to trust something it's it, using the word yeah. trustless. It's sort of like decentralization as a word. It's a very bad word to use, but it's Nobody also wants yeah, like to be cavemen. Like yeah. that's decentralization. Like go fucking into a tent somewhere in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I, mean, I, 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 I guess I mean, we need better words, but like, but that, but when is that never the issue? Like, yeah, terminology. Yeah, that's, and that's, new that's why we're competing. Yeah, it's not like one day we're just going to be like, you know what, humanity, no more words. Or like, you know, you know what? I set this thing and every single human understands it perfectly. That's never, ever happened. As soon as you can <laughs> plug your brain into a computer that, that yeah. is, does have the like, you know, it doesn't care what you think. Our savior, that's Elon Musk, will take us there with like a Neuralink. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like that's the type of thing that you would need to get to that point, I think. You know what is kind of fascinating to me is that like, not to get too far off a topic, is that when you Google a word and it shows like when it started in history or like the best we know of when it started, and it's like, who was the motherfucker? What's that called? Dude, fornication under consent of king and ship high in transit, like the favorite words of everyone to use in the English language, yeah. are like literally sold trash barges and like promiscuous you know soldiers that didn't want to get doomed to hell like that's <laughs> like here's a piece of paper from the king that says you can go screw with this unmarried girl and not go to heaven she's going to get killed but you know at this point in time no one cares about that <laughs> uh, it's part of linguistics Corey. there's a word for it i know what you're talking about like the study of time epidemiology i want to say it's epidemiology but that sounds like it's something to do with skin Hold on, let's Google it. Does I'm looking at I'm, I'm Googling epidemiology, the study of the distribution of determinants. That's infection. That's, that's infectious diseases. I'm an idiot. Uh, study of history etymology. of words. Etymology. Etymology. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's close. I just I just, COVID. I got COVID brain. Everything's all about infectious diseases. Yeah. It's just blame blame the science. Blame the scientists yeah. that named everything so similarly that epidermis and you know epidemiology yeah. <laughs> sound pretty similar. Fuck those scientists. But Let's wrap this up. Let's word. wrap this shit up. I'm yeah, wearing yeah. these soccer shorts backwards. Nice. So right. that, that's the most dad live shit I've heard you say. 
<laughs> put my clothes on backwards. I literally put my clothes on backwards today. So that's that's what it's like being a dad. Um. So thank you for listening to episode 317 of the Bitcoin Podcast. You can check us out on the BitcoinPodcast.com, BitcoinPodcast.network, BlockchainPodcast.com. Like, I don't know. We've got some other, we've got some URLs hanging out out there. Redirecting. <laughs> you can tell oh, them. Uh, you can still we tell the them. Right the, we tell them the news. That's right. Drop the news. Let's drop it now. Yeah. If you made it to the end of the podcast, no more podcast. We are shutting ahead. down the network. There is no more network. network going. We're going back to just being the Bitcoin podcast. That's right. So if um, you're subscribed to this feed, you have a limited amount of time to listen to the other shows, which is basically just hashing it out. Uh, and then it's just going to be us again. It's going to be us going back to the original, hanging out, having fun, and doing the show. Yeah, it out will exist. It's just going to be on its own feed, doing its own thing, getting its own branding. And uh, go to the Slack. Go to the Slack to hang out with us because that's where most of like the conversation is, and it's awesome. If you ask me, the Slack has been the Bitcoin Podcast Network this whole time. That's the real network. People come in there. They meet the types of individuals that are in there, incredibly bright, incredibly forward thinking, um, incredibly into crypto as a whole. And you just build so many connections and contacts that, um, I mean, we've had several people in our Slack community just meet, you know, meet the right people at the right times via our Slack community. And they're, and they're doing great. And they're doing fine. You know, it's a great place if you're trying to get into crypto you know, you're, you're doing like your career. You want to go into crypto and you want to get your feet wet. Our Slack is a great place to start. Uh, you want to know what the new hotness is as far as DeFi and whatever new token is hot. Yams. Our Slack. Yams, like Fuck. whatever. Hot. You can come into our Slack and hang out. Like this isn't going to be. Let me tell you what it fucking isn't. So you know what it is. It's not one of those crazy investment groups. Um, it's also not one of those dudes that's like, you follow my, follow my algorithm based on like fucking meteorology and, uh, fucking (laughs) and when you trade onto the cycles of seven and 25 and a third, we will make you money. You just got if you right. come to the Slack with that shit, I will kick you out real fast. People yeah. need to stop giving these companies and projects stupid fucking names. What Damn. do you mean? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, CryptoKitties made sense. Yams. Like, really? That's sort of like, if you were going down like this You ain't trying to get yammed? You ain't trying to get yammed, Kevin? I, I live on Yam Street. Like, I feel silly. I wouldn't buy a house on a street called Yam Street. <laughs> I feel like you should talk to that dude directly. What the fuck is wrong with you, man? <laughs> I wish I wish that like if like if Kevin sits on some type of investor board, I could just yeah, be a fly on the wall as he like shits on people when they come to him. <laughs> I would watch that. Like the, like the like the shark tank for I don't I don't know, hipsters? Like what, what would that be? Like <laughs> <laughs> Yams, you name this shit. Get the fuck out of here! <laughs> I like there's yeah, some good not names that. and there are some not good names. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's just that I don't like sweet potatoes or something. But like, 
like the yams like that's all i think of is the little cans of do you get irrationally angry during thanksgiving and christmas when you see all these yams around and i don't there's no yams in my house like this is part of the thing about controlling Thanksgiving and like the food that you eat is that you don't have to have. Granted, it's like I don't know anyone that I, I mean, I guess I probably know people that eat yams, but no one in my family. There's not been something that has ever been in my house during Thanksgiving. Yeah, <laughs> I've like had yams in my family. Like we have like you know, like cranberry sauce or whatever it is, but yeah. no yams. Yeah. It's because yams suck. <laughs> oh my god you know what Kev? You can, you can one thanksgiving with me and my family and that will will change your mind sir all right you've never had my mom's candied yams with some toasted mallows that's short for marshmallow on top Oof. canned yams is the is that's it for me and that's why i thought that yams i thought like sweet potatoes or sweet potatoes but yams were like the canned version <laughs> i my my wait, mother. Wait 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 wait. wait. What yams. is a yam? It's a sweet potato. It is a sweet potato. I just yeah. thought it was only when they were in. Canada. Why do they, why do we call them yams? I don't know. When I was in middle school, we called yam and fucking. So we'd be like. <laughs> and then also a lady's posterior were also called yams, and so we would say, "Look at that girl's yams," and they would be like, "Yeah." <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. And so, it's like Netflix and chill. Yeah, potatoes. pretty much. Yeah, Netflix and Yemen. And then also a lady, if she's got nice uh, parts, uh, <laughs> you, you call them yams. So we will, were... I'll try that. You know, of course, I'll give me your judgment. <laughs> okay, we were 12. Uh, I was a saint my entire I'm gonna see, life. I'm going to see how the female population feels about that. Have you never heard anybody say yams shaking her yams? Well, I think it makes kind of sense because at one point legs were called gams, so it's kind of like a natural progression. I don't know. Anyways, we're gonna not. Girl's legs looked like yams, and dude liked it. That's why. Probably stop objectifying women (laughs) before we get in trouble. That's correct. Never, hold uh, on. Let's like, just, like I said, like I said, we're going back to the original Bitcoin podcast. We're de alienating <laughs> large, large swaths of our audience every day. Every day. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, wait, we're just gonna be politically correct, dudes. You can have yams too. All right, so <laughs> we're gonna move on. Uh, thanks, guys, for listening to episode three seventeen. Uh, like, subscribe, do all the things. I'm gonna start an unboxing YouTube channel soon where I unbox uh, really? things. No, I'm not. But I really want to cereal boxes, like just like the mundane <laughs> things, like terrible things that you get every day. Hey guys, hey guys, we're doing <laughs> a box of Captain Crunch today. Uh, it is Captain Crunch blueberry version. No, I'm kidding. I just think that would be fun to do. Uh, shout out to <laughs> Zoe Saldana and Zots Beats. Uh, play outro.